Feed My Starving Children is a Christian nonprofit organization committed to feeding God's children hungry in body and spirit. Due to the current crisis in Ukraine, they have provided 4.5 million meals, which has left their food supply for the rest of the world significantly depleted. Sagebrush has been given an incredible opportunity to come alongside Feed My Starving Children to provide a unique volunteer experience for the whole family. We've been tasked to pack 264,000 more meals to reach hungry children all across the world. If you would like to volunteer on August 12th or 13th at the Riverside campus to help pack these meals, visit sagebrush.church events or the Sagebrush app and sign up today. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Well, what's more loving than offering food to those who don't have food? We're trying to pack 264,000 meals. That's enough meals to fill up an entire semi-truck trailer. And I need 1,400 volunteers to make that dream become a reality. Now, because of your generosity, we've already paid for all the food. $65,000 worth of food, okay? <laughs> So I need you to show up. We're going to slap a hairnet on your head, and you're going to be around in tables. There's going to be fun music being played. We're going to put this stuff together, and we're going to help people who are struggling in the name of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you'll sign up for that. Uh, you can do that on the website. You can do that on the app. Let me give you a warning. It goes fast. Even though we need 1,400 volunteers, when you get large families together to go around an entire table to put this substance, this food together in these different packets, these spots go fast. So right there on the app, there's a banner that says, Feed My Starving Children. Also on the website, you don't want to delay. Do not live your life in the land of manana. Get it done and get it done now, okay? Because we got friends right now watching us on TV and on the stream, and I promise you they're going to go online and they're going to sign up, and they're going to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. So I appreciate everything that you're doing. I also want you to know that we spent $5,000 this past week at the storehouse to buy 5,000 cans of food for those who are working poor. They're looking for a little bit of help. And we've spent over $25,000 so far in relief of the fires that are happening all over the state as well. This is because of your generosity. This is because of your kindness. And so I want to say a big thank you. We even have teams right now in Las Vegas that are helping. This weekend, we have teams in Las Vegas that are being the hands and the feet of Jesus. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into the message today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the church, for when it's working right, the poor are fed, those who are lost are found, those who are hurting find healing because of you. Lord, we are your church. It is not some building. We are the church, each individual person, no matter where we sit in this room or in our living rooms or on a treadmill right now. Every single one of us, Lord, makes up your kingdom, and you want to use every single one of us in a significant way. So, Lord, here we are. Use us. Lord, may it never be said of us that we were the kind of people that looked to the left or to the right to get something done, that we did what needed to be done, that we allowed you to take us on the adventure of a lifetime, to leave our piece of the world, 
in better shape than the way that we found it. Lord, move us beyond complacency and boredom to the excitement and the adventure of what it is to truly follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Came across a true story this past week. Happened in 320 AD. There was a Roman emperor at the time. He made the following edict. He said, every man, woman, and child must bow down and worship him. And if they had worshipped any other god, they were to denounce that god. Well, there was a, a platoon of soldiers called the Thundering Legion. And they were in the Armenian mountains during the middle of winter when word came that they were to bow down and worship the emperor. Well, there were 40 soldiers who refused. 40 soldiers who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and would not do what the emperor was demanding of them to do. They would not renounce their faith. Well, word got back to the emperor that they refused, and the emperor was absolutely furious. So he sent word to the general. He said, you give them one more chance to bow down before me, and if they don't, I want you to have each and every one of them executed. Well, the general pulled the 40 men aside. He said, listen, you're great soldiers. I don't want to lose a single one of you. Bow down. It's not that big of a deal. And once again, all 40 men refused. So word came down from the emperor that they would not be thrown in a lion's den. They would not be impaled by a spear. They would be put to death by being frozen to death. They served in the mountains of Armenia. There was a huge winter storm that was happening. The general took these 40 men along with his other soldiers out to a frozen lake. He made those men disrobe and head out to the middle of the lake where they would eventually slowly but surely die. And the other soldiers began to make fun of them as they began to take their clothes off. They began to laugh at them. They built a fire and they said, it won't be very long before you come back. But their taunting stopped as the 40 men all walked out to the middle of the lake. And then in the distance, they heard the following cheer. Here die 40 men for Jesus. The soldiers started to make a meal, thinking the warmth of the fire and the food would coax them to come back and denounce their faith and worship the emperor once and for all. But they continued their chant. Here die 40 men for Christ. Several hours went by. Their body temperature was now going down when one man broke ranks. And he ran back to the warmth of the fire, got himself a meal, denounced his faith in Jesus Christ, and said he would worship the emperor. Well, imagine the drama of watching this unfold. It began to impact some of the other soldiers. Expect that one particular soldier, after that man moved back from the lake to the fire, he began to disrobe. He looked at the general and he said, Sir, I want to be the 40th man. I want to become a Christian. And with that, he took all of his clothes off and he ran out into the middle of the lake. And throughout the course of the night, they heard the chant. Even though it grew more and more faint. Here die 40 men for Christ. And when the morning light came, all 40 men had died. Friends, when you get to the point in your life when you're that sold out for Jesus. 
When you get to that point in your life where all you care about is him, you no longer care about making a name for yourself anymore. And the temptations of this world that once were so attractive to you, they're, they're not attractive anymore because the only thing that matters is living your life for an audience of one. You just won't find yourself trying to build your kingdom of mud that's here today and gone tomorrow. You'll leverage everything you are and everything you hope to be for the kingdom of God. Well, we've been doing this series called Troublemaker, and we're going through the life of Jesus. And you know, last time we got together, we talked about the fact that Jesus was tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights by Satan himself. Well, what happens next? Well, Jesus goes to the synagogue in his hometown. Now, what in the world is a synagogue? A synagogue was a place of worship for the Jewish people. They would gather together and they would study the Old Testament scripture. Jesus had been to this synagogue many times as a child, and now it's his opportunity to pick a passage of scripture from the Old Testament and to share it. And so Jesus picks a passage of scripture from the book of Isaiah. It's a passage of scripture that's a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. In this one fell swoop, Jesus is going to announce to his hometown that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. This is a prophecy that was written 600, 700 years before this event took place. This is what Jesus read in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, here's what's interesting. If you go back to Isaiah, to the place that Jesus read, you'll see that Jesus stops reading at the comma. He doesn't stop reading at the period. He stops a little bit early in the verse. Why does Jesus stop at the comma and not at the period? Because at the period, it would have said this, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he stops reading that. He stops at the comma. Do you know why he doesn't read the day of vengeance of our God? Because the day of vengeance of our God comes at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's trying to say. You have a window of opportunity. I have come to set you free. You can repent of your sin. You can live an abundant life on this earth and eternal life forever in heaven. I have come to pay the sin debt that is so great that you could never pay for it yourself. And if you would just repent of your sin, humble yourself, then you could have life and you could have it eternal. Oh, but make no mistake, there's going to be a day when the window of opportunity is going to close. And like a thief in the night, in the blink of an eye, all hell will break loose on this earth. And it'll be too late. It'll be too late. Well, the people are quite upset. They can't believe that Jesus has just read this messianic prophecy and that he is proclaimed to be God in the flesh, that he is proclaimed to be the Son of God. And they begin to mumble back to forth to themselves. They're murmuring. They say, well, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's kid? Didn't he grow up right down the street from us? Who in the world does he think he is telling us that he's the Messiah? 
This would be the equivalent, not quite the equivalent, but this would be like Peter Parker announcing that he's Spider-Man at a high school assembly. Nobody would buy into that. That's not spider Till he shot the webs from his hands, you know, nobody would buy into it. Or it'd be like Clark Kent finally showing everyone that he's Superman by taking off his glasses. You know what I mean? I mean, right now, you don't recognize me, do you? Because this is an amazing... Here I am. This is Todd. Hey. Who's that? Oh, it's Todd. Yeah, right? This would be the equivalent of Batman taking off his mask and saying, I'm Batman. But then they say, oh, no, there's no way you're Batman. Batman has a raspy voice. He'd say, I'm Batman. That's what he would do. <laughs> Look at what happens next. Because Jesus proclaims that he is the Messiah. It's the equivalent of your best friend telling you he's the Messiah. Or your husband telling you he's the Messiah, right? If I ever get up here and I say, listen, I'm the Messiah. Just ask my wife. And she'll say, there's times he thinks he's God, but he's not. That's what she'll say. Look at what Jesus says next to them, because they're mad. They're really mad. They're angry that Jesus has proclaimed such a thing. And Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do you hear in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum? I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy that in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What's Jesus' point? He's saying, you're going to miss out. Just like the people of old missed out. And he tells a couple of stories, doesn't he? Elijah's story and Elisha's story. Elijah finds himself in the middle of a famine. He's got a brook that's dried up. And so God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. There's a widow there that's going to take care of you. And when Elijah gets to this strange country with this woman who doesn't even believe in God... He thinks he's going to be in better shape. He finds out that she's getting ready to fix her last meal, and then she's going to die as long with her son. And so Elijah thinks, what in the world, God? Why have you sent me here? And of course, God does a miracle through Elijah. The woman is saved. Elijah is saved. The boy is saved. What's Jesus' point? What do you think for three and a half years during the famine, there weren't widows in Israel that needed food? Yet none of them had faith in God. They missed their opportunity. So God sent a prophet to a foreign country, to a foreign woman who had more faith than all of you. Ooh, that ticked them off. And if that wasn't enough to really get them riled up, he said, let's not forget about Elisha and, and Naaman. Naaman was a commander of a foreign army. He had leprosy. He had a servant girl who was an Israelite girl. She told him that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal people of leprosy. So he gathers his belongings, gathers his things, and heads to find Elisha. And Elisha won't give him the time of day. He sends his servant out to talk to him. Boy, that made him mad. The servant said, my prophet, Elisha, he said, all you have to do is go down to the Jordan River and dip under the river seven times and... When you come up the seventh time, the leprosy will just float away. And Naaman was mad. He said, you've got to be kidding me. The river of the Jordan is so filthy and disgusting. Do you know how many rivers I crossed that I could have dipped in seven times? I won't do it. 
And Naaman's servant said, well, let me ask you a question. If he'd asked you to do something difficult, would you have done it? Naaman said, of course I would have done something difficult. He said, well, why don't you release your pride and humble yourself and do the easy thing? So what did Naaman do? He went over and he dipped himself seven times under. And the seventh time he came up, the leprosy was gone. What's Jesus' point? He said, do you think there weren't people in Israel that didn't have leprosy? Yet none of them had faith in God to come to the prophet to have them healed. It was a foreigner who had more faith than all of Israel. Ooh, it made him so mad. Jesus said, you're going to blow it. You're going to miss the window of opportunity because of your pride, because of your ego. Well, the people got so mad, they grabbed hold of Jesus, and and they took him to the edge of a cliff, and they were going to throw him down from the cliff, and they were going to have him killed. But the Bible says that Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They could not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. Because he wasn't the Messiah that they thought that they needed. Friends, for you to understand, for me to understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because I know you read the Bible, for you to fully understand what was going on as Jesus walked our planet, you have to understand four groups of people, four groups of people who were all looking for the Messiah, and they all had the same question, Jesus, whose side are you on? We're going to find out that the the religious establishment that was happening during that time is that Jesus ticked every single one of them off because he didn't come to take sides. So let's talk about these four groups of people. The first were called the zealots. They were looking for a Messiah that would lead them in war against Roman occupation. Oh, they were so ticked off about the Romans being there and their soldiers on every single street. And so the zealots believed that they would fight the government. They would fight to their death. That there needed to be a rebellion. There needed to be a revolt to get their country back again. Zealots always carried a knife, a dagger with them everywhere they went. And they would look for a Roman soldier in a crowd. In the midst of a crowd, they would come upon the Roman soldier and they would stab him between his armor and then they would disappear in the crowd. Jesus comes on the scene. But he doesn't talk about overthrowing the Roman government. In fact, he says some pretty crazy things that a zealot just couldn't get behind. Things like, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, you offer them the other cheek. Boy, the zealots didn't see Jesus as the Messiah at all. How about the Essenes? Their approach to the Messiah coming was that they would get away from culture. That they would hide away in the mountains. They would hide away as far as they possibly could because they didn't want to be tainted by sinners. And so they believed that the way that the Messiah would come was that they would become as pure as they possibly could be. These people were so wiggity-whack, they would not relieve themselves on the Sabbath because that would make them impure. Now, I don't know if they were able to not relieve themselves for a whole day. I would find that very difficult to do, to be honest with you. But that was the goal of the Essene. You stay away from culture. You stay away from sinners. So they're looking for a Messiah that will separate them. 
Put them in a little holy bubble away from everybody else. Then Jesus comes on the scene, says, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, oh, the one we've been waiting for has come. But wait a second, he eats with sinners. Wait a second, he, he, he's called tax collectors to be his disciples. Oh, wait a second, he hangs out with prostitutes. And they just couldn't understand who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about. So they rejected Jesus as well. And then there were the Pharisees. There was never allowed to be more than 6,000 Pharisees at a time. And they had made a solemn vow that they were going to keep all of God's Ten Commandments. They were all about rules, and they were all about regulations, and they would walk around, and they would strut their stuff, and they would look down on everybody else. They would be disgusted by the sin of other people. The amazing thing about the Pharisees was the Ten Commandments wasn't enough for them. Oh, no, 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 no. They made rule after rule after rule on how to do the Ten Commandments. They had 24 chapters dedicated to how you should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. 24 chapters of what you could do and what you couldn't do. Let, let, me, let me give you a few of the things that they said. For example, a Pharisee couldn't take the bath on the Sabbath for fear that they would spill some water onto the floor. And somebody might walk by after they've had their bath and they would slip on the water. And it was considered work if you put a towel down and collected the water. So there were no baths on the Sabbath because you were honoring the Sabbath and you were keeping it holy. Let me give you another one. They couldn't cut their fingernails on the Sabbath. So you got a hangnail, you got to deal with it, man, for another 24 hours. That's just the way that was, all right? Because if you clip that fingernail, you clip that hangnail, you pull that, that was considered work and you were breaking the Sabbath. How about this one? Ladies, you'll love this one. You couldn't pull a gray hair from your head. Yeah, you're looking in the mirror after you just came back from the beautician and you look at that and you say, oh, oh they missed a spot. But you can't pluck it, not on that particular. Everybody's just going to stare at that gray hair. You understand what I'm saying? That would be considered work. Let me give you another one. If a person was dying, they could give the person medical attention to keep them alive, but they couldn't improve their condition. So I'll keep you alive, I'll keep you suffering, but I can't improve you. No ibuprofen for you, okay? That's just the way that's going to be. If you dislocated your shoulder on the Sabbath, they couldn't shove it back into place. You had to have a dislocation. They could pour cold water on it, but if they shoved it back in place, that would be considered work as well. Jesus comes on the scene. What does he say about all their Sabbath rules? He says, you got to be kidding me. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And all your rules and all your regulations are silliness. And Jesus didn't follow or obey any of those things. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And you heap all these demands upon these people. And you walk around so pious and so arrogant as if you're better than everybody else. Jesus reserved his harshest words for the Pharisees. And they hated him so much, they, they plotted a way to kill him. And then there were the Sadducees. What a corrupt group of people they were. They were collaborators with the Roman authorities and the Roman government. They, they worked the temple. 
So they would make certain that they would give some money to the Roman authorities so they got the opportunity to work the temple. And the temple was quite a money-making organization. William Barclay, in his commentary, estimated that the temple in the first century made $5 million a year. $5 million in the first century. That's a lot of money, wouldn't you say? How'd they make their money? Well, there was a temple tax. But you had to pay in temple money. And so the other kind of money was called unkosher. And so you had to have kosher money. And the only way you could get your money to be kosherized is to buy temple money. And they would do that for an exorbitant fee. And then every year, of course, and several times a year, they would bring lambs to be sacrificed for their sins. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. Without the shame of blood, there's no forgiveness of your sins. So you'd bring the best lamb that you had, and that lamb would be killed, and your sins would be forgiven for one entire year. Of course, all that's going to change after Jesus dies on the cross, rises again from the dead, because he's the ultimate lamb of God who comes to take away our sins. But to that point in time, here they are bringing their lamb after lamb after lamb. Well, guess what? The priest would check the lambs out. And they would determine whether the lamb was worthy or not to be sacrificed. And, of course, you can guess that the priest didn't think any of the lambs were worthy. So you couldn't use the lamb you brought. You had to buy one from their temple flock at an exorbitant fee. What did Jesus do to the Sadducees to tick them off? Well, you know the story. He went in and saw what they were doing, and he made a whip. And then he made a point. And he drove the money changers away. And he got rid of the sheep and the cattle and everything else that was there to be sold as sacrifices and said, get these out of here. My father's house will be a house of prayer. You think that didn't tick the Sadducees off? All four groups wanted to know one thing. You know what they wanted to know? Whose side you on, Jesus? Whose side you on? One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is when Joshua is getting ready to take on the city of Jericho. And he's a little concerned because it's a fortified city. And he's getting ready to lead them to Jericho. And when he's heading that direction, an angel of the Lord stops him with his sword drawn. And Joshua asks a question. He says, are you on their side or are you on our side? And this is what the angel of the Lord said. I'm on the Lord's side. We live in a world that's trying to divide us. Whose side are you on? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are on the Lord's side. You're not on this side. You're not on that side. You're on his side. Jesus said, I don't, I'm not buying into anything you guys are doing. You've got it all wrong. I've come for a greater agenda. I've come to die for the sins of all mankind. I've come to give you abundant life on this earth, eternal life in heaven. I've come to take that sin debt that was so great that there was no way you could ever pay for it yourself. And I'm going to die on a cross and I'm going to rise again from the dead. I came to start a new community of people where the kingdom of God is for everyone. And then Jesus began to put together this crazy community of believers, didn't he? He, he picked Simon the Zealot. To be one of his disciples. He says, Simon, you hate Roman occupation. You think the best way to overtake them is through a war. And you're looking for a general. You be my disciple. And uh, Matthew, you're a tax collector. You've collaborated with the Roman authorities. You've sold your own people out for a few bucks. You and Simon room together. You should have some interesting things to talk about. Because the kingdom of God has come for everyone. Nicodemus, 
you're a Pharisee. You're all about rules and regulations and you look your nose down on everybody else because their sin so disgusts you while you ignore the sin in your own life. Nicodemus, you're going to be one of my followers. And the Samaritan woman by the well, well, you come from the wrong background, the wrong gender. Oh, you come from the wrong sexual history. I mean, my goodness, you've been married five times, currently living with a guy. You have a conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus says, I've come for everybody. And the way that we're going to turn this world upside down is through love. We're going to love people like we've never seen people be loved before. And they're going to hate us. And they're going to yell at us. And they're going to spit at us. And they're going to mock us. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to keep on loving them. They're going to strike us on one cheek and we're going to offer them the other. They're going to tell us to walk one mile and we're going to walk two. And we're just going to keep coming after them again and again and again and again with love. A stronger love than they've ever seen or ever experienced before. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. By the way that you love one another. Jesus is and was the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. But he is and was the Messiah that we desperately need. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we don't need to be taking sides unless that side is yours. We need to seek you with everything that we've got and we need to be marked by your love. And the way that you've treated us is the way we're to treat every other person we come in contact with. So, Lord, put us to school in your school of love. May we love like you have loved us. And may we stop eliminating people and judging people and looking down upon people. May we stop getting in our little Christian bubble where the whole wide world can't touch us because we're safe and secure with our Christian church and our Christian small group and our Christian friends. Help us to be the light of the world. Help us to be the salt of the earth. Help us to take the message of your great love to a lost and dying world. Help us, Lord, to love people so well that they would see your love and they would want what we have found in you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.